0: Welcome to the ROTC Scholarship Podcast, hosted by former Army ROTC Professor of Military Science, Lieutenant Colonel Retired Rob Kirkland. In these episodes, we explore how to best prepare yourself to obtain one of these valuable scholarships for those applicants who wish to attend a college or university and become officers in the military. The application process can be complex and confusing. This podcast works to make it more understandable. And now, the ROTC Scholarship Podcast.
1: Welcome back to the Service Academy and ROTC Insiders Podcast. This week, we're really excited to have a special guest on the show. We have Colonel Forrester with us today, who was a 24-year Air Force veteran physician and allergist in the Air Force. And I'm also joined by my co-host, Colonel Kirkland. So, Colonel Kirkland, how are you doing today, sir?
0: Uh, I'm doing great. I'm really excited to talk to uh, Colonel Forrester today about his career as an allergist and the military medical process in regards to allergies.
1: Absolutely. Sir, welcome to the podcast. Really looking forward to talking about some examples of some young people that you've provided guidance for, maybe who are looking to either enlist or join the officer corps. Our goal today is to help candidates understand whether or not they're going to be disqualified based on their current conditions. Would you tell us a little bit about your background in the Air Force and your time as an allergist?
2: Absolutely. It's nice to be able to use this forum to reach out to folks who are wanting to join the military and hopefully I can maybe help them, help relieve some stress and maybe answer some questions that could help them along the way. So I began my career in medicine as a health profession scholarship program student called HPSP. That program is a scholarship that pays for medical school for folks who are are wanting to be doctors. So I'd been accepted to medical school and then I got the first bill and didn't know how I would pay for it. So I started looking around for options and I applied for the army and air force scholarships, went through recruiters. And oddly enough, the army recruiter messed up my paperwork. He submitted me to, for a three year scholarship when medical school is four years and I couldn't afford that one extra year on my own. So I turned down the army scholarship, hoping that the air force would, would come through and they did. I got my four year scholarship with the air force and I attended a civilian medical school in Kansas city, Missouri. And I was on the reserves during that time, during those four years. And then when I graduated medical school, I ended up attending residency in pediatrics at Wilford Hall Medical Center in San Antonio, Lackland Air Force Base. And we also did some training at Fort Sam Houston. I served a tour as a general pediatrician at the 10th medical group at the Air Force Academy in Colorado Springs. And then I applied for my allergy fellowship and I was accepted and went back to Lackland Air Force Base to Wilford Hall where I completed a a fellowship in allergy and immunology for adults and children. So. I take care of all ages now. Then I was stationed at Eglin Air Force Base, where I completed the final 12 years of my career as the Chief of Allergy and Immunology and down in the Panhandle of Florida. I retired in the summer of 23 and joined a medical group in Coleman, Alabama. That's where I sit today.
1: Excellent. Thank you for that background. Sir, what was your experience with patients looking to join the military?
2: Yeah, in my experience, children of service members, dependents who were um, patients in our clinic who had a potentially disqualifying medical condition. And in my world of allergy or immunology, usually that would be a food allergy or an allergy to insect venom stings or perhaps medication allergies that not just standard one medication. So they had something that was potentially disqualifying and they would get referred into our clinic for evaluation to see is one, is that allergy real? And then what's the risk? Or could they be deployed to an austere environment and not put their fellow uh, combatants at risk? As physicians in the military, we try to balance the health of the patient, which is always paramount. That's our number one goal. The patient in front of us, what is best for them as an individual and their health? But then we also have the integrity of the military. We have to protect the mission. If we can't send someone downrange who would compromise their fellow soldiers or airmen. So, we have to judge that as well. I made it always clear with these folks coming in that my goal, number one goal, was to their health. So, if they truly had a potentially fatal food allergy, I would be very clear about that and I would not sugarcoat any recommendations or letters or anything like that, because it it would only hurt them potentially. And if, if someone goes down because of a preventable problem, then others have to pick them up.
0: Yes, yeah, sir. That's a great, great point. I mean, one of the things sometimes we'll get from uh, when we talk to candidates and particularly candidates' parents, they'll say, well, my child has X allergy. Why can't the military just uh, have them avoid that particular issue. He or she's on a ship or in a submarine. They can avoid this allergy. What's your
2: response to that? If you look at the DOD instruction, 6130.03 Volume 1 that I know you've talked about before, it lays out all of these medical issues across all fields, all specialties. The mind in dealing with allergy Let's talk about food allergies, for instance. Those are probably the ones that come up the most common. That and asthma are the most common medical conditions within my specialty that I deal with for uh, potential, for candidates applying. They really only name um, five different food or food groups that are problematic. Fish, crustaceans, which are like shrimp, crab, lobster. Then it says shellfish, which can also be shrimp, crab, lobster, but it lumps in the mollusk family, so clowns, oysters, conchs, those sort of things, and then peanuts and tree nuts. Any other food allergy outside of that could be a problem, but those are the ones that are specifically named. Now, they're not all, I mean, some of them are in the most common group in children, but there are other food, what if they're still egg allergic, milk allergic, weed allergic, less common as you get into adulthood, but certainly there and harder to avoid. So that's where a referral to an allergist, if there is a food allergy, would be helpful. So they could one do some allergy testing. That can be done either through skin prick testing and they and the doc may also choose to do blood test to measure the level of antibody specific to that food, it's problematic. And then depending on the the test results, they may or may not recommend a food challenge where if the kid's been avoiding let's say they've been avoiding peanuts for their whole life because they had a reaction when they were one year old. And they do the skin test and it's negative. They do the blood test, it's negative. They could offer that child a peanut challenge in the clinic. If they pass it, guess what? They don't have the peanut allergy anymore. And most physicians I know would be very comfortable writing that letter saying they no longer have a peanut allergy. They don't need to carry an EpiPen. A lot of times where what hangs people up is if the, if the requirement or the recommendation is for them to carry self-injectable epinephrine then that is always interpreted as oh well that's a severe allergy well it's not it, it shouldn't always be interpreted that way by the medical community but certainly to the lay community that's how you and i uh, agree with that's how they should interpret it, that interpret that so anyway I, I probably went too far with with the question you asked but that's really, that's what I would deal with regularly right. in the allergy clinic at Eglin and also at Lacklin.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah, that's exactly right. I mean, what I was, I kind of I was alluding to was the, the point that no matter what service you go into, that you could be put into a situation in an austere environment or in a situation where you have yeah. to be exposed to these types of things. There's really no way to avoid it. I mean, in, in the long
2: term. I mean, You're a hundred percent right. And think about MREs. You know, if, if you're deployed, if you're even in training, we had to eat MREs at Cot when I was at uh, the Maxwell Air Force Base for a month. I mean, they put us out in the field for four days and we ate MREs and there's no allergen free MREs. I mean, there are some that maybe don't have peanuts, but they probably all have wheat of some sort. Maybe they don't all have eggs in them, but some do. So you could see from a, a manpower and logistical standpoint, if you've got, an airman or someone who needs a special diet. I mean, it, it just, you, how difficult that could be downrange. These applicants, I hope that they will see it that way. These instructions and these rules are not to be punitive to anyone. It's simply to protect the mission. And also, right. honestly, to protect the individual. The last thing you want to do is end up in an austere environment and have an anaphylactic event. It's hard yeah. enough to survive anaphylaxis when you're in an emergency room here in the United States, get yourself out in the middle of the woods somewhere and have anaphylaxis. Well, now it gets a little problematic.
0: Right. Yeah. And and particularly if you're
2: an officer, because this
0: is what we're talking about here is that you are in charge of leading America's airmen, sailors, Marines, and soldiers, and you can't be failing that mission either.
2: Great point.
1: Allergies. That's one of the top things that we see. I'd like to dive into that a little bit deeper too, sir. But no. Just to go over the other areas that you previously mentioned, the venom, allergy, yes. as well as, as the medications. And you mentioned it before, sir, but we want to talk about it again. Department of Defense Instruction 6130.03. It's 55, 53, 55 pages, but every candidate, no matter if your service academy, your ROTC scholarship, should be opening up this document and looking through and reading all of the disqualifying criteria. And a lot of people will say, well, sir, I maybe had a reaction when I was one years old, but it really wasn't written down. And maybe it was written down and it's been in my record ever since, but I don't have that allergy anymore. I've been eating the food for a long time. The fact that you had the reaction and you met the disqualifying criteria once is going to disqualify you. And that's a really important thing to note that Doddmerb, they are not Looking at the gray area, they're very black and white. It's going to be up to the individual service to make that decision as to whether or not you should be waived.
2: And many times in that scenario, they would require you passing an oral, a a food challenge about the only people who do that are allergists. So it, again, it may be temporarily disqualified, but you pay if, if you are, If you are honestly been eating the food your whole life, you're now 18, 19 years old. Do you go into an allergist office? The history is good. The doctor agrees you pass a food challenge Well, you've spent three or four hours in a doctor's office, but then you could leave with a note saying that you're not allergic to it. There's no reason to avoid it. There's no reason to carry self injectable epinephrine. That's clear.
1: Definitely. And I think what, what you just said. Sir, is so important that you're going to be disqualified, but just because you get that DQ for that specific event or situation does not mean you won't be waived. Yeah, absolutely. But, but then, you know, we come to the standpoint of once you are disqualified, that changes the admissions decision, at least for the service academies. If your application isn't strong enough for the academy to consider you a strong candidate, they will not pursue the waiver. It doesn't matter if you only had that one incident when you were one year old. So you have to be thinking holistically and thinking, how can I make my application as strong as possible? That way they will want to take a chance on me and look at me for a waiver. That's a consideration that you have to take into account.
0: Right. And then with the ROTC scholarship, if you win a scholarship, you're automatically looked at for a waiver.
1: So two two separate paths for the academy versus the ROTC mm-hmm. side. And that's, that's where the admissions and medical merges together. Okay, great. So, Colonel Forrester, can you talk a little bit about that decision matrix that you would make as an allergist? Somebody comes in and they have an allergy on their record. Can you walk me through the process and the the steps that you would take?
2: Absolutely. First off, I I probably need to speak to a parent. If this is a young person, a teenager, an 18-year-old who could see a physician on their own, I usually ask for permission to get mom on the phone or someone, preferably mom if they're available, to walk me through the history of whatever reaction or allergy we're talking about, because if it was, they had a little rye, if it was eczema and it caused their eczema to flare, that's different than full-blown anaphylaxis, where they had to be rushed to the ER and got admitted and got weapon ever. How severe was the initial reaction? What was the timing of it? I take a very detailed history. I'll spend sometimes. 45 minutes to 60 minutes with a new patient. Going over that history and just asking them questions over and over in different ways to try and tease out exactly, one, have they been, did they have the right diagnosis to begin with? And then we look at the history after that. Have they been strictly avoiding it? Have there been any accidental ingestions? If they are a dependent within our system, when I was in the military, I'm not in that system right now. I could look in the EMR and I could easily see if they had been, if they had had subsequent uh, subscripts, excuse me, prescriptions for epinephrine or inhalers, if we talk about asthma. So we can look at that and then I would make a decision if it was safe or not to test them. Most cases it is safe. So to do the testing anyway. So we would choose, normally we would do skin prick testing where we have an extract, we'll keep using peanut as an example, prick their skin with peanut. And if it, it, if it reacts, that's okay, perhaps because we have cutoffs, allergists have cutoffs for the size of the reaction, the hive that happens. And we can predict, are they 50% likely to fail a uh, challenge or are they 95% likely to fail a challenge? If the size of the wheel is less than those predictive values. We may go on and offer a challenge just after a skin test, or we may do a blood test and look for specific antibody against the food in question. And there are also predictive values with those. Ultimately, there are patients who have elevated skin test reactions or specific antibodies in their blood who are adamant that they have, they have been exposed to the food and didn't have a reaction or they haven't eaten it in 15 years and they want to do an oral challenge. That's where, because they're highly motivated to, for this, to get off of their record, that motivation sometimes can, I don't know, maybe cloud judgment a little bit, not only of the applicant, but also their parent or guardian. And I'm not casting stones here. I'm just saying it's, we know this going into it, doing a challenge, um in the light of certain levels of reaction or uh, test results, if the if the pretest probability approaches a hundred percent that they will have a reaction, you might have a hard time convincing the allergist to do the test. And I would just say you could get, ask for a second opinion from another allergist, but ultimately it's the doctor's license on the line. And mm-hmm. I tend to honestly, I was on the more conservative side if if their test results were in that 95 predictive, that 95 percent predictive value, I rarely offer an oral challenge to a food because I've treated some pretty severe anaphylactic reactions in my career, and it's it's certainly not for the faint of heart. And you just don't want to put a kid into that position.
1: When you do the food challenge, what are the considerations for parents?
2: Well, one, they would, it would, it's usually planned for at least a three to four hour block of time, we'll stick with peanut. The family would be told to bring in about two tablespoons of peanut butter. The key is they have to pass that challenge with the end result being a full adult serving size of whatever food it is. And we'll, and the allergist would tell them that before they showed up. So let's say they show up with a tablespoon or two of peanut butter, which is generally the adult serving size. They can't have taken antihistamines. Some people will try and pre-treat themselves with big doses of antihistamines. I would, I would caution people against that because it's dangerous. You're only putting your own health at risk and those around you. So normally what an allergist will do is do a prick skin test with pure histamine that day of the challenge. And if it doesn't react, then that person has been taking antihistamines. So the challenge will be canceled. Let's say the the pre-challenge screening is normal. They're good to go. We start out with tiny amounts of the food and each allergist has their own comfort level, depending on their pretest probability of a reaction. If it's low, you can go fairly quickly with maybe with six steps or so. If you're a little worried, you may do eight steps. But it starts out with tiny amounts. We take the total dose, we weigh it out into different aliquots where the first one may be 0.1% of the total dose. Then we go 1%, then 4%, then until, and every 15, 20 minutes, we give them the next dose. We're checking their vital signs before each step increase. And then observe for one to two hours after the final aliquot of that food is consumed and we're monitoring for signs. And if they get through that, they pass. That's the gold standard for ruling in or ruling out a food allergy. And that that really is the process. It's a long process, but it's worth it in many cases.
1: Do you generally start that in the morning with, stu- it sounds like it takes a while.
2: Yes. Yeah. That's a, that's the first thing in the morning appointment. <laughs> Certainly, if someone has a reaction, they could be there all day, and that means it ties up staff all day too because you have mm-hmm. to dedicate a nurse to that one patient for the entirety of the the challenge and observation period it's one on one with a nurse.
1: What are some of the signs that you're looking for? what are reactions that you could see that were would be minor or or severe for that?
2: Ideally, if someone was were having a reaction to the food, we would pick up on that early that one of the smaller doses. It could be oral itching or tingling, any kind of throat irritation or tightness. Those would be some of the earlier signs. They may present with uh, runny nose, nasal congestion, red injected eyes, uh, hives, itching. And certainly as we move into non-cutaneous symptoms, if it's they're coughing or having shortness of breath or chest tightness or wheezing, that's then we're getting more severe. And Anytime there's an adverse reaction, it's up to the discretion of the physician, quite honestly, but in, in my clinic, if I'm giving you something that I'm pretty sure you, you could be allergic to, and you start experiencing adverse symptoms, I stop the challenge and I treat. And normally that treatment involves an injection of epinephrine. We could give either oral or, or an injection of antihistamines. We may have to give steroids. We do whatever it takes to reverse the symptoms. So, yeah, as aggressively as needs be.
1: Excellent. When we talk to folks who maybe have an allergy, they're not sure, they want to know what the steps are. And so that's what our whole goal here is today is to just educate people on the decision matrix that you are making or the
2: I think it's rare that you would be able to walk into an allergist office and say, Hey, I need you to write me a letter saying I'm no longer allergic to this food. I've been eating it my whole life. Because I mean, what you're doing is asking that physician to validate something that they have no evidence for. So if they choose not to do that, I would encourage people to not be too hard on them and understand this is their profession and they put their license on the line, their livelihood on the line, anytime they do something like that. So if the doctor that they go see wants evidence, objective data, before making that decision, I would just encourage folks to understand that. I mean, you, do you really want a physician who's that cavalier? Probably not.
1: I think too, what, what is the physician going to write in their letter? that is going to convince Dodmer that you no longer have this condition if they don't know, if they haven't seen anything.
2: Because Dodmer knows that we need some objective data and it's in the best interest of the patient to know what their risk is. If they find out they are deathly allergic to whatever food, isn't that valuable information? I would like to know that personally. I'd like to know it for my children.
1: There's There's a lot of ways to serve. When we talk about students going into the service academies or ROTC and commissioning, right, they're doing that because they have a desire to serve and lead others, and there are many other career fields where you can do that.
2: Yeah, and once they get past the initial shock, we can get past. But look, highly motivated people are who we need in the armed services. Mm -hmm. We need people who want to be there for the right reasons. So if we can facilitate that and help them check these boxes, clear some things out of their medical record. Most physicians that I know, certainly the ones that are within the service, would very much like to help young people get into the military and get their medical record. It may take a little while. It may not fit the timeline that they originally wanted, but it's worth going through each step.
1: And I think as a follow-on to to that point, sir, sometimes we talk about immunotherapy and what, what does that look like?
2: Well, so we do immunotherapy for environmental allergens. So we can talk about that. That's if someone has, let's say the common term is hay fever, they're allergic to pollens, they have seasonal allergic rhinitis. They can be on allergy shots. Another name is immunotherapy. And that's because we're actually, the therapy is addressing the immune response to these pollens or pet dander, whatever it is. It's, it's not a quick process. It's a series of injections that slowly increase the amount of antigen or allergen that is being injected. But what we're doing is slowly desensitizing the body so that it doesn't overreact to these things, causing unwanted symptoms. A normal immunotherapy course is at minimum three years. Normally a maximum of five years can be longer in certain patients. So as far as environmental allergens, you can't be on immunotherapy and and be accepted. And I mean, I, I don't know of anyone who's ever gotten a waiver for that. So then the question becomes, can you stop? Because immunotherapy for environmental allergies is always elective. It's never one of those things that we strongly, that we say, oh, they have to have it or they're, because it's non-fatal allergy. It's maybe miserable allergy, but in most cases, it's not going to be fatal. So. If they were to stop their immunotherapy, are their allergies controlled? And I think by control, if you're on one Zyrtec a day, I don't say I've never seen that be disqualified. Maybe it has been for some people. I don't know. But if you're requiring immunotherapy in order to have a normal quality of life, you would need to wait until that immunotherapy has completed before, I think, applying now for insect venom that that's covered in the in the dodi as well so people who let's say they are stung by a fire ant or a yellow jacket or a honeybee and have an anaphylactic event they've softened this language a little bit because now as as long as there's documentation of at least three years of immunotherapy being done it's it's not a problem so you could have a history of honeybee anaphylaxis. If you completed three years of immunotherapy already prior to your enlistment or your application, that's not disqualifying. So that has been, they've recognized that because three years of the immunotherapy has been shown to essentially lower the risk of anaphylaxis back down to that of the general population. They're no longer at an elevated risk. So that's why it's written that way. So there's hope for that one. Unless of course, your anaphylaxis occurred when you were, 17 years old and you haven't had time to complete three years of therapy.
1: Well, for students who are really motivated to go to the academies or go to ROTC, you have to commission by the time you're 26 for our yeah. for service academy. So there's some time yeah, there. Plenty
2: of time. But and then again, you would need that allergist that offered your immunotherapy to provide documentation that you completed at least three years of therapy. And then there's the documentation that, that would be needed.
1: And Speaking of those DQ, those disqualification criteria, I just want to call those out. Food allergies and the insect allergies are on page 43 of Department of Defense instruction. And discussion of allergy immunotherapy is on page 54, talking about the fact you can't be on it and and be disqualified. If you're listening to this and you're interested in looking for the specific language, we're going to post a link straight to the Department of Defense instruction so you can go and you can read those.
2: Yeah, the immunotherapy is under uh, miscellaneous conditions.
0: If you have a peanut allergy, you think, sir, you'd need uh, three years of immunotherapy in order to be able to overcome, for
2: example, a peanut allergy? Well, that's an interesting question because notice I mentioned immunotherapy for environmental allergies and for insect venom, not for foods. So... There is no curative immunotherapy for food allergy currently. There is one product for peanut allergy for children. It has to be started before the age of 18. It's the only FDA-approved product at this point, but it's not curative. What it does is hopefully protects against anaphylaxis in the event of an accidental ingestion. So that would... You couldn't be taking it, and I don't even think they would waver it if you were actively on it, but when you come off of it, you're still considered allergic to peanut. So if your peanut allergy persists into late adolescence, early adulthood, there's just not much that can be done for it. The the standard treatment is avoidance. Now, I mean, there are off-label oral immunotherapy protocols that some practitioners use for foods, I personally don't it was if it's not f d a approved we didn't use that in the d o d at least not in the Air Force medical system unless there was a research protocol that was doing that. but as far as I know, I don't know of any that claim to be curative like immunotherapy for venoms
0: oh well, that's that's great information for non food Im- immunotherapy if you're sitting there and you're 16 or 17 years old looking to go to a service academy or ROTC program. you're talking about what the options that that Trish talked about was mainly waiting, maybe going through that immunotherapy in college and then then going through say a uh, officer candidate school or something like that later on in your after you complete college or something like that. So there are options for being able to go through that in the years after while you're in college or maybe later in high school, but it does sound like there's a window that you need to have in order to be able to overcome those types of allergies.
2: Absolutely. And as an example, I had a 15 year old patient. I always ask about insect reactions unless I get in too big of a hurry and forget to ask, but it came out in that first visit that when he was younger, he had what sounded like anaphylaxis to fire ant stings, and it had been over 10 years, but because, and he hadn't been stung since. So I tested him for fire ant and he was positive, even with that remote history that was anaphylaxis, meaning it involved more than just the skin. It was more body systems involved. And now he had positive testing. he met the criteria for being allergic to fire ant. Well, he wanted to enlist in the uh, military when he graduated from high school. He was 15. So we did, we had about three years to get through this and he was highly motivated and so was his family. So we put him on allergy shots and he kept a calendar and his mom kept a calendar and we knew the very day that he would be, have met three years of immunotherapy. Now there is one caveat to that. If someone is on three years on their immunotherapy for a yeah, few, no. And while they are in the middle of that, let's say they get stung again and have a reaction, an anaphylactic reaction, that could potentially extend the duration of the therapy. The allergist has the option of increasing the dosage that they're injecting or simply extending it. So, three years is the minimum, but clinically, it's individualized to the patient. They may, you may need more than three years depending on how you respond to it and how severe your allergy. But in that case, that young man was able to stop after three years. And I was happily able to write in his note that he was considered cured of his fire ant allergy. Now I still recommended he not go play in a fire ant now. Don't get me wrong.
0: (laughs) I don't think that, I don't think anybody would recommend that, but it was like, but yeah, that's, (laughs) well, that it's really great information. Well,
1: Sir, thank you so much for your insight and perspective. It's so valuable for parents and students. Do you have any advice that you would offer students or parents who are considering military service with a potential food or insect allergy?
2: Yeah. um, And I would throw asthma in there as well. That one also is a common one. I would just say, be as open and honest as you can be with those you are um, meeting with, whether it be recruiting, whether it be MEPS, whether it be your physicians, and it may be multiple specialists you have to see, the clearer the picture, the better it will be for your overall health and your safety, which is paramount. You need to be around for your family too. So not putting yourself or your comrades in in a bad situation because you were less than forthcoming with a potential medical issue. Military service is is it's it's so important to our country and our our freedom that any young person who wants to join the service has my my admiration and I encourage more to do so. I wish everyone would volunteer to do a little little tour, but it's not worth your your life or the lives of those around you. So just be be open and honest. It'll make the process go so much. And it'll help, you know, in this case, allergists understand exactly what test you need. If any, you may not need any. They may be able to clear you just from the history, but go into it understanding potentially what obstacles there are. And if I think, and be determined to seek out waivers, you don't have to take the first no for an answer. Seek out waivers. They're there to be had. There are boards that meet all the time for these things. And if, if it's meant to be, you'll make it. And if it's not, though, like you said earlier, find other ways to serve. The military, you can still serve in the armed forces without wearing the uniform. So find ways to, to continue that service if that's, that's what you want to do. Thank you so much, sir. I really appreciate
0: you coming on today. So thank you. Thank y'all. Thanks for listening to the ROTC Scholarship Podcast. If you like what we're doing, please leave a quick review. If you have any questions or want more information about ROTC or our consulting services, please visit our website at rotcconsulting.com. Take care and we'll see you next time.